Hello and welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. Yesterday, I was attending this sports resolution conference and I managed to get a hold of Jeffrey Kessler, who's the co-executive chairman of Winston Straw, who are sponsoring the sports resolution conference. He's one of the world's leading antitrust sports lawyers and trial lawyers in the United States of America. He's represented the NFL Players Association, the NBA Players Association, Major League Baseball Players Association, the NHL Players Association. He's represented the US women's soccer team. He's in a quite significant dispute at the moment around the structure of US soccer and particularly against the United States Soccer Federation. In this podcast, he talks about the cases he's been involved with, the ones he's most proud of and the reasons why, what he was talking about at the Sport Resolution Conference, which was uh, focused on anti-doping, and he gives his opinion on the very recent IWF and Casa Semenya case, which is hugely topical at this moment in time. He also gives a snippet of advice for all those looking to progress their careers in sports law and what he says that he's looking for when he's looking for you know, high performers in the sector. I enjoyed the interview. I wish it could have gone on for much longer than it did, but we, we had time constraints. If you uh, like what we do, please do share this with people. You, know, you can go to lawandsport.com. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. You can download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud. Um, should be on Spotify now. You know, uh, we really do rely on word of mouth. So if you like it, if you do enjoy these podcasts, please do tell people. And if you'd like us to, you know, maybe interview certain people or cover certain topics, please also just let us know. You can email us at info at law and sport or you can message me on Twitter, SPCOTT. Uh, other than that, thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. I'm here at the annual sports resolutions conference in London, sponsored by Winston Straw. Our guest today is their head of the sports group. Is that correct? Would you say head of sports group or head of department? How would you how do you classify that? Uh, we call it the sports law practice. Sorry, the sports law practice. Uh, Jeffrey Kessler. Um, He's also the co-executive chairman of Winston Straw, and he's just flown back in from, we've come from across the pond to Dubai, and then back in for the conference today. It's an absolute uh, pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. I really do appreciate you taking the time out, and um, I know you've got a hectic schedule while you're here. Um, as well, Peter, I managed to interview uh, Peter Crowder last year, and we had a great chat about his role in the conference and, and why you guys were supporting it, but... I think given that uh, sports res have been so good to, to help facilitate this um, interview, I wonder if you could just um, say a few words about the conference, why you guys support it, and um, you know, well, what, you, what happened on your panel this morning. Well, what's unique about this conference is that it focuses on the issues of uh, integrity and morality and fairness in sport. Uh, everyone is very easy to focus on the business of sport, and so I think it's very important to have uh, people with deep interests and stake and stakeholders uh, focus on how we can improve sport for the benefits of the athletes, of the fans, and really everyone who participates in the process. And you'd, you'd like to think that um, 
in theory, we talked about this just before offline, that you'd like to think in theory, as we've evolved in business, in the business in the corporate world now, that doing the right thing is a good thing for business, right? Having a bit more morality, having a, a, a wider social impact and responsibility is actually good business nowadays. Well, in theory, yes, I do believe doing good is good business as well. Uh, but there are also a lots of conflicts of interest in sport, particularly in a uh, in the Olympic sports movement and in many of the federations. And uh, if you don't redress those conflicts, it's hard to get to a fair result. And obviously you were talking about anti-doping this morning um, and there's a fair amount of conflicts of interest <laughs> within that. What was your take on that? Well, my focus was on the fact that the governance structure is broken, uh, that we have a a sporting world where the interested parties are making the decisions and therefore we shouldn't be surprised if you don't always get uh, the decisions that are in the interest of the sport as opposed to the individuals involved. And what I'd like to see is greater athlete influence and power uh, in the determination of how these sports are run and how uh, doping and other things are taken care of. And I think you would get a uh, a much better result uh, if that type of governance reform was made. Now, now you've got a very um, illustrious uh, career in law, uh, looking at anti-litigation, uh, obviously, uh, competition law, antitrust issues, intellectual property, etc. Given that, you understand how long a game these type of transitions or evolutions of an industry can be. How, at this moment in time, given all of the varying factors... Uh, that are taking place, whether it's the human rights in Canada or the commitment to human rights by the IOC, etc., then litigations that you've been involved with in the US. How do you see this sort of um, playing out over the next couple of years? Is this something that, you know, in an ideal world, you click your fingers and you have more athletes involved, essentially, in that process? Where do you see that evolving? So I do think that most change in organisations are evolutionary, not revolutionary. And I do think we're making progress in a lot of areas of sports, just like we're hopefully making progress in other areas of our governance and life. Uh, but it is a long-term uh, struggle uh, to do this, and uh, I think you have to uh, work on it every day uh, in order to try to uh, make progress. And I wanted to touch on, on sort of your career, really, because you've been involved in some of the biggest cases in US sports, and we've actually got a, 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 I'm not sure by the time this goes out if it would have happened, but we've got a webinar next week with the SLA, with um, uh, the, the co-chairs of the conference next week, talking about how the American sports market and sports law market has impacted the wider sports right. law market, and you look at the concussion. Um, how did you get involved, given that you've been quite influential in some of these, like, like I said, quite landmark cases? How did you first get involved in sports law? Well, quite accidentally. Uh, so I started my career as a uh, competition lawyer, and when I started as a as a recent graduate of law school, I joined the firm, which had one uh, sports competition case. It was called the Oscar Robertson uh, NBA Players uh, Class Action that was trying to achieve for the NBA players a greater degree of freedom. Uh, and financial rights than they had at that time. And uh, I joined my law firm with, frankly, not even knowing that case was at the firm. But through that, I started to become involved on a mixture 
of competition law and sports. And as things developed over the years, other opportunities uh, came to our law firm and it became a part of my career. It's, it's interesting because I, I, I map this globally and it's a consistent thing that where people with an interest in sports law, you know, the right opportunity, you have to be opportunity ready, I'd say. Uh, you know, you have to be willing and able to put in the time and effort and see, obviously see where it's going to grow. Um, from there then, so we started to pick up more sports clients. That's right. Um, what was the what was the appetite within the firm? And when are we talking about is in what era at this point in time? And well, this was back when I started as a lawyer was 1977. Wow. So we're talking quite a while ago. And in fact, the business of sports at the time was puny yeah. <laughs> compared to where it is today. Uh, the When the Oscar Robinson case was brought the average salary in the NBA was something like $28,000 uh, wow. at the start wow. of that case. Yeah. So that shows you how far back this was. <laughs> and uh, what's happened is as sports has become such a gigantic business, uh, there are more legal issues at stake. Uh, there are more uh, principles that get uh, vetted in the legal process. And so over time, there's been lots of opportunity uh, to work in that area, and, and our particular practice has been heavily in support of the athletes and the athletes' rights and athletes' unions and other stakeholders that I would say are more on the anti-sports establishment side of things as opposed to representing uh, the established leagues and organizations. And, and would it be fair to say that you see that as a, as a sort of a correcting balance? Is that correct? Because I think sometimes in this world, right, the, I see this polarization, people go, you're either, whether it's an anti-doping or in other areas, you're either athlete or you're um, uh, an institution lawyer, right? Or you're either on that side, or, and I always say that it's, it's a bit more complex than that. Well, it is more complex. And in fact, uh, I represent uh, many large uh, organizations and companies in other areas of my practice. Uh, but in sports in particular, um, we've become uh, the uh, primary legal resource uh, for sports player unions and athlete rights and advocacy. So where those issues are involved, uh, we've been fairly consistent in uh, being on that side of the controversy. And over your, your career thus far, how have you seen the sort of attitude towards the uh, player unions, as you call them, or the, the athlete movement? How have you seen the attitude shift? Well, um, I would say that at the beginning, uh, there was really a deep misunderstanding by sports fans uh, about uh, the athletes' economic struggles because fans had trouble appreciating that for these athletes, this was their livelihood, that their careers are in many cases very short, uh, that there is frequently an enormous risk of injury, uh, and the sacrifices they go through in order to produce what they do. Uh, and I think today there is a much greater appreciation of all of that, that we find a lot more support for the idea uh, that if you're choosing between how uh, the revenue should be divided in sport, that the first thing you should look at is that the individuals who help produce that, just as you would uh, if you're looking at a, a motion picture, 
Uh, no one ever questioned the fact that the stars of the movies or the directors or the others contributing are the real sources of the revenue for those type of properties. And, and given the, uh, these moments nicely then onto this point, I'm not sure if you're happy to talk about this, let me know if you're not, but given the, um, particularly now given the money grab that is the sports betting market in the US, um, and the revenue, the additional revenue that that's going to bring, and the focus, the greater focus, as it already has been, on college sport and the NCAA model. And obviously we've had some, some recent decisions on this yes. that, 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 that have, have um, looked a bit more favourable, let's say, on the interpretation of remunerating athletes for the use of their image as such as that. How do you see that playing out over the, over the coming years? Well, I actually uh, had a trial this past year for the, um, uh, the basketball players uh, in the United States in college and the uh, football players at the highest level. And we actually struck down under the competition laws the existing set of NCA rules that stop the schools and the conferences from deciding how to compensate the athletes. Now that is going to be on appeal now uh, in our judicial system. Uh, but that is a struggle that's going on that I'm very much involved in. And, and it's really hard for people outside the U.S. to appreciate this, but these are gi gigantic commercial enterprises that have grown up inside the university system so that the total revenue generated by American football in college and basketball exceeds that each year of the NBA. Crazy. It exceeds that of Major League Baseball and of the National Hockey League. It is the second biggest uh, professional sport, which is what it is in terms of revenues, uh, only to the National Football League in the United States. It's really hard to, for, I think I agree with you, when I first started to get involved with US sport, and, it, uh, and March Madness, example, the figures of revenue generation from March Madness alone, the basketball competition, yes. blew my mind. And when I went out to the rest of the market, particularly within Europe and then further afield, they really couldn't believe the amounts of money. And uh, this notion of amateurism is just one that, that from afar, anyway, from being outside of it, you really sh I struggle to, to grasp. Because even when there's people, uh, professors like John Woolahan at Syracuse University, um, you know, who says, like, you know, who's, who's, who's written about this issue at length as well and says, like, you know, one player can attribute, you can attribute millions of pounds worth of jersey sales to that one player. And, you know, that one player, God forbid, should someone lend him some books or, <laughs> you know, he's literally, his, his whole college education could be out of the uh, window. It's something I, I really struggle with objectively to, to, to try and get my head around. It, it, is, very, it is very hard unless... You're, you've been subjected to sort of the whole history of NCAA propaganda about this to even understand uh, the argument. You look at it, so their argument is that um, if the football coach at Alabama, which who makes about $11 million, um, if he made a few million dollars less and that money was instead given out to the largely poor players um, instead, uh, and uh, most of whom, by the way, do not go on to be professional Absolutely, athletes. Yeah. This is their one chance that if that happened, somehow this would undermine the integrity of the sport uh, is frankly a ridiculous notion. Uh, but yet that's the, I, the premise upon which 
all this is built. I'm not sure if you consider this, but one of the things that I, that I always think are quite hopeful in terms of accelerating this process, uh, having a more, uh, let's say, objective analysis, would be that from, from the world that we operate within outside of the US market, obviously we've had sports betting here for some time, and if you were to create um, the perfect storm for corruption, you would choose college sport. And there's obviously been problems in the past with that, but you go, right, what do you have? Huge amounts of revenue, huge amounts of eyeballs watching the sport, huge betting markets, and yet the, the participants are not who are struggling to um, eat healthy food, for example. Or, <laughs> you know. and, and you've seen in the United States, there have been in the last few years, and, and there have been criminal prosecutions because of under-the-table bribes and other things that have gone on, which is really an extension of the fact that the system doesn't allow a fair compensation systems, but you have all this money. So instead it goes to corrupt purposes instead of actually operating in a normal way to reward the athletes who are producing this revenue. Actually, it could be so interesting to see how this sort of pans out because as this yeah, yeah, good. I'm glad you you know you mentioned that. I feel I'm slightly embarrassed now because I'm pretty confident we've done reviews of all the cases you've been involved with, and I didn't put two and two together that it was you on that case. Some of the other cases I was well aware that you were involved with, so I apologise for that. That's um, no problem. Uh, in terms of your, uh, you, I was well, we talked about this before, and I'm over here is again and, and more globally as well. Um, women's sport finally is um, getting some recognition and some investment. Um, which is always seen, again, quite a, from a commercial, but as a business owner, it's always seen quite mad to me that you don't want to appeal to 50% of the market. And so it just seemed like a very sh sh short-sighted uh, commercial decision amongst, regardless of what you think about the equality issues. Um, uh, how excited are you about US playing, US uh, women's soccer team playing in the, um, in the World Cup in the summer, given that now you know, that you, you're involved in a litigation around their funding and their ability to actually go to these competitions? Well, I'm incredibly excited for the women's national team in the United States because, uh, as has been true for many years, they are probably the favorite to win the World Cup. And yeah, they are, I question that. Uh, they, are, <laughs> they are a phenomenal team of very gifted uh, athletes and, and really are, I think, a leader in the world on this. And yet, they stand as an example of how much gender discrimination there is out there, not just in sports, but frankly in the entire world of commerce, because they only get paid about 70% of what the men's national team does in the United States. And if you are a football fan at all, you know that the women are world champions or world champion contenders, and unfortunately, the men's team in the United States, not so much. And, uh, so the idea that the better performing athletes, that the more popular athletes, the higher revenue generating athletes are the ones discriminated against just shows the depth of this gender discrimination that we're fighting. And, and um, it would seem to me, though, that the case that you were involved with was a, was a trigger because that's obviously you, the perception is obviously what happened. Given that America is probably the most developed sports market, arguably you know, could argue about population in Australia and the UK, but in terms of more broadly, sports we've got, and when uh, the players make a stand, whether it's on the concussion, whether it's on the Kaepernick 
you know, taking a knee right. situation, it does have a ripple effect um, elsewhere, given its influence. Um, that must be quite exciting, though, to, to, to think that, you know, because for me, looking at this, it was like the US went on a strike. I think Australia did a similar thing. You know, there was a, collect, was a, a, a cascade effect, um, or maybe it was more collegiate. Well, that's know. what the women hope. You know, the, they're standing up on this issue of equal pay, not really just for themselves, but they feel an obligation to stand up for this issue for really, first, for women athletes around the world, but secondarily, for women, period. Uh, because uh, if you can't achieve equal pay in a situation like this, then where will there be equal pay? And so they really feel they have to take this stand, uh, and they will continue in this uh, until they... Uh, get the same type of victory here legally as they hope to get on the field of the World Cup. Well, it was, it was, it was really interesting because uh, we published a piece by Angela Collins at the PFA in Australia, and they did a fantastic, because I was very excited that the uh, FIFA had invested more, more money in women's international yes. soccer, and you go, great, it looks great, there's X number of millions going in. And they did this fantastic uh, infographic online, basically saying, look, again, the proportionate compared to how much was in, increased in the men's, it was not right. even a fraction of it. And, I'd, and again, I had just taken it, and I'm quite... I like to think quite critical of these types of things. And I've just taken it on face value and gone, wow, this is fantastic. This is an uplift. This is brilliant. And then you look at it uh, in, in comparison to what happened in the men's, and you go, no wonder then the women's game isn't getting as much profile or much as attention, you Yes, one of the excuses that the United States Soccer Federation uses for discriminating against the women is, well, FIFA does it. <laughs> and so uh, as if that was some type of reason that they should do it, and our response is very simple. Um, uh, the United States Soccer Federation is subject to US legal requirements. I wish FIFA was, it's not. Uh, so we could deal with what we could deal with in the United States, but they really have to comply with the fact that we don't allow for such pay discrimination here, and we're gonna make them adhere to the law. And on the um, US Soccer Federation, you're involved in a litigation at the moment. Can you uh, just give an overview, obviously, because it's, it's pending, so you probably don't want to go into too much detail. Yes, I, I'm not the favorite person of the United <laughs> States Soccer Federation. So in addition to the uh, equal pay fight we have for the women's national team, I also have an antitrust competition case for the North American Soccer League, which uh, was a league that was striving to compete against Major League Soccer in the United States at the highest level. Um, they don't allow uh, promotion and relegation in the United States, so instead they have a, a divisional system where they certify leagues to be in Division I to compete against each other. But what happened is, we believe, because of the influence of Major League Soccer on the United States Soccer Federation, uh, they did not apply the standards in a neutral or fair way, and instead they prevented the North American Soccer League from competing, and then eventually uh, even deprived it of a Division II certification in favor of another league, the United, uh, the United Soccer League, which is affiliated with Major League Soccer as their minor league. Uh, and as a result, uh, the North American Soccer League has been forced to suspend operations. So we, so we have a, uh, a competition case going forward there, and uh, 
we hope to eventually achieve a, a legal victory there. And I'm presuming then there's people who are invested in Stadia and the teams, etc., all been affected by this as in terms of... In and around. Sure, yeah. uh, because what happens is you're, if you don't have the competition, if you don't have promotion and relegation, and you don't have the comp competition of another league, all you really have is a monopolistic situation, which is going to lead to lower quality, higher prices, uh, less of the benefits that you would like to see in a competitive market. And, and, and what's the time, what, typically a sort of case like that, what's the, what's the sort of time frame? Is it two years or is it? it? It takes a few years to go through the courts, but we hope to get to a trial sometime in 2020. Okay, great. Okay, it's good to, to, to have it on the because there's lots of stuff going on right. in, in FIFA worldwide with diff different uh, changes to the transfer system, solidarity payment trade. And I think, yeah, it all has a sort of um, a related impact, I think, in terms of what some decisions that I think are being made at the moment. I'm just conscious of time and you've probably got other things to do, but what it'd be remiss of me not to ask you, what was the your sports case, I should say, is what's the what's your favourite sports case you've been involved with yourself as in? What's your what's your sort of one that you're most proud of or you've enjoyed the most? It's a very difficult question because I've been involved in many different things. I'll pick two. Um, so one was I was involved in winning what was called the Freeman McNeil case, which led to free agency in the National Football League for players. And that was a very influential result for free agency in the other sports as well. And since that was such a fundamental economic right that we went all the way through a jury trial in order to achieve that, uh, and it was at an earlier point in my career, that's still something that I, uh, you know, I take great uh, personal satisfaction in having contributed to that result. Uh, the other one of a more global uh, standpoint is I represented Oscar Pistorius uh, in the chaos arbitration uh, that allowed uh, the uh, disabled athletes to win the right to compete against the able-bodied athletes in the Olympics. Uh, and uh, that now has become uh, an established principle in some ways. and. Uh, able being able to achieve that, uh, I thought was very important generally uh, for the rights of disabled athletes, and so that's what I take a lot of pride in. Uh, excellent, congratulations on both of those cases, but both Thank ones you. again we've covered and, <laughs> and analysed. Um, right, you, you're, you, we would say I think we'd all agree, right? You're a high performer, right? You had a successful career and still do have a successful career. I'm curious to know what, what can, when you're looking at someone, right, who's looking to develop in the sector, or you're, you know, looking at you know, the various people you meet in all sectors. What are the sort of the main characteristics that you'd pick out? This is my final question because I can see I'm getting like, you know, wrap it up. I, I, I get it. Um, I'm trying to maximise the time here, but the uh, mean cheeky. The what are the characteristics though? So when you're looking at someone, right, and you're going, I, I think that these are the things that I'm going to look for in an individual. Right, rather than just being a good lawyer necessarily, but what are real personal characteristics you look for? I think you want to look for someone who understands the entire picture. Um, so f from a legal standpoint, it's not just about uh, an individual case uh, or as very limited, specialized problem, 
Uh, it's about the client as a whole or the the objective as a whole, the cause as a whole. It's, it's, it's fitting in the little pieces of what we do every day into some larger plan of things. I think if you take that type of perspective, you're going to be uh, someone who could achieve more uh, in your life uh, in terms of that. And sort of recognizing uh, that, as, as I think I was saying earlier, that Change is sometimes evolutionary, not revolutionary, and uh, you have to build each block one at a time in order to get where you'd like to at the end. Right, and then one, I'm going to be another cheeky, I know, just one quick one, quick fire one. What, outside of your practice, what uh, sports law issue that you, do you follow that you're not actually involved with yourself, but you find particularly interesting? Is there, about in, in sports? Yeah, yeah, in sports. Is there a legal issue that outside of what you do directly that you think, well, I'm quite interested in following, see how that develops? Well... Uh, I'll talk about something that just happened um, uh, that I'm not involved in right now, but I have been involved in in the past, which is the decision with uh, Casta Semenya yesterday, uh, which I personally find to be an outrage. Uh, and the reason for that is that the whole concept of the superior athlete is based on having some genetic advantage uh, over the athletes against whom you compete. So we don't look at someone like Usain Bolt and say, let's examine your genetics and see what advantage you were born with. Maybe it's unfair. You should take something to suppress that. Only in the case of human sexuality do we ask that question. And I think it is discriminatory. Uh, it is sexist, and it's fundamentally unfair to approach someone like Castor and say, well, there's something unfair in the way in which you were born. Uh, it, it's offensive, and yet that's the question that was posed to Cast, and that's the question. It was a majority they, decision, they so it's going to be interesting to see, see where this goes, because I think that there's... <sighs> Again, right, we've, I always say this, right, we're in, we're in legal context, I think, where the summaries of the analysis so far that I've read, and I've, we've paused on this for a while now. We covered it years ago, we've paused on it yes. because of a lack of information. You have to acknowledge that there's a lack of information. We haven't got the full decision yet, so you are limited on what you can actually analyse. See, it, it, it sounds like what the majority said is, well, there was evidence produced that her biology gave her a certain advantage in certain sports. And my question is, so what? <laughs> that, that is the very essence of sports. There is a reason I am not an Olympic athlete. Yeah, yeah. And it has a lot to do with my particular genes. <laughs> yeah. But I don't get Maybe we've to, got the same genes. <laughs> you know, I don't get to say, well, gee, there's something unfair. Well, I say Jack. Because, Jack's one of my, my Because sort of Michael yeah. Phelps yeah. has a body that is uniquely designed for swimming. Mm, absolutely. You know, but in sexuality, we're going to question that, mm -hmm. and it's wrong. Yeah, there's this... There's this I, I, we did some analysis of testosterone years ago studies, and, and the, the overlay and, and this whole thing about uh, normalization is in the male range and the female range, I think, is 
is something that, that that's troubling. The point I was going to make is that the limitations of um, any arbitral system in itself, or the the, the you know the, the arguments that are put forward, the decisions only as good as if serious as the people put forward. Yes, the I, I suspect the decision doesn't actually answer the fundamental question. That so, they're so, just so. operating within the rules that the IAAF set, which were flawed to begin with, and that's the problem. So, 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 so I'm back to sports governance again. And the same yeah. issues that infect the, the, the conflicts of interest in doping and create problems there lead to poor decision-making here as well. Kristen Morley made a good point when I interviewed her on the podcast and someone I know well and uh, uh, her case in Kenya, in Canada. So as you said, I'm not going to be an athlete anymore. I'm going to take it to the courts separately because if I'm in the system, I can't do anything about it. Right. If I go outside the system, I always thought that was a very good um, perspective to bring. And I think that's one of the challenges of, of these type of cases. Once you're in the system, then it's framed that way. Um, thank you so much. I was slightly late to this interview, so I really appreciate you you being patient and waiting. Really enjoyable. I would love to continue this for another two hours, but I think your, your colleague's going to kill me if I do any further. Really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, what great work for your career. What, what uh, like just in the spot, I know you've got, I've printed out like five, six pages of your, just your cases, um, but what a, what a great. Um, their career you had in sport. That's something to be very proud of. So thank you. I really enjoyed well, it. Thank you very much. Cheers. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, remember, you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, go to lawinsport.com. If you're interested in jobs in the sector, we've got a recruitment division. If you're interested in upcoming events that we have, we've got a football conference on the 22nd, 23rd of May in London with around 300 people coming. Uh, it's going to be some, talking on the, really some of the most important legal issues in football um, at this moment in time, which I'm very excited about. Uh, we do other networking events. We've got a global mentoring scheme that you can apply to be involved with. Uh, and most of all, uh, if you like what we do, please tell people. We really appreciate it. Um, other than that, I hope you have a great day, great evening, great morning. Whenever you're listening to this, often people are commuting, so I hope your commute goes well. Um, yeah, and uh, really do appreciate your support, and thanks for tuning in.